The following teaching is from the 2015 Man Up Men's Retreat at Trinity Pines. We hope it is a blessing to you. For more information about the men's ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. That's houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. Ben, ben Stewart. All right. Well, howdy. Okay. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, and I'll read you a couple verses. I'll pray and then jump in. Um, and while you're turning there, I guess I'll say a couple of things. Um, one, it was cool driving over here. I, I couldn't remember the last time I'd been to Trinity, Texas. But uh, when I crossed over the train tracks, I remembered a gravel parking lot, uh, of all things, because that's where uh, I was on my way to a breakaway retreat, and I pulled over into that gravel parking lot because my girlfriend and I in the car broke up. And uh, I drove her back to Huntsville, dropped her off at her mom's house, came back out to the breakaway retreat by myself. Uh, I had just quit my job a few hours before, uh, and so I remember laying down in bed that night and was like, Lord, I just let go of everything. Uh, I am free-falling in this world. Uh, and I remember sitting bolt upright a few hours later, waking up going, what have I done? And I stopped and was like, was that about the girl or about the job? Uh, and I realized it wasn't about the girl. We needed to break up, and it was awesome, and she's married, and so am I, and everybody wins. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but I, was, uh, I was meant to go back to this ministry job that I had quit because it was hard. Uh, and I remember sitting there and, and, uh, and just getting counsel from Greg on how to persevere. And uh, there's been a million moments like that where Greg's been a counselor to me, and uh, I'm deeply grateful for that. But that was my, that's my Trinity memory uh, on the way here. Uh, the only other thing I want to say before we jump in is just uh, to let you know I'm, I'm uh, inspired by this. I, di I, didn't, uh, I didn't grow up doing stuff like this. And so hearing a group of men worship together, uh, it's kind of kind of mind-blowing. It's kind of cool. So uh, it's fun to be here with you and, and see the potential of men deciding to follow God, what that could mean for the women of Houston and kids of Houston. And uh, it's something. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you're left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thanks for this gathering of men. I just ask you now that your spirit would move in power in us and to open our minds to be illuminated by your word. We, we would understand things we didn't before about you and about ourselves as a result of sitting in this room. Lord, open our eyes to see you and see us more clearly. And then I pray you would affect us with what we learn about who you are and what we see about ourselves. And I pray you would change us. Lord, I pray that you would affect our minds, our hearts, and our lives. I pray you would change us as a result of sitting in this room right now. And I I can't create that. And so we're asking you to. And I want to ask you, if you're willing, just to take a minute and ask him that. Pray and say, Lord, please teach us in this moment. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would speak through me and I'd be helpful to you. Father, we love you, and we trust you. Use this time, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm grateful to be standing here with you. Uh, Several years ago, I uh, was traveling and speaking with my wife, and I was speaking at a camp, and we stopped at a Starbucks, uh, and while we were there, a young man stole my wife's iPhone, literally from right off the table in front of us, ripped her earbuds out, right? And he went running out the door, Uh, which was interesting, because... As a man, you always wonder what you would do in that moment. You know what I mean? Like when it goes down, what will my instinctual reaction be? Uh, My wife's was to yell. And she yelled, get him, babe. (laughs) Which at that moment, what are you going to do? Be like, no, I'm good, right? So it's time to roll out. So I kicked off my flip-flops and I went in pursuit of this young man, right? And we turned the corner and there was a security patrol car in front of us. I started yelling for help until I realized it was driven by his buddy. It was their getaway car. I have no idea how they procured that vehicle, but there it was. And so all in a moment, we ran up to the car, and the young man with the phone jumped in the passenger side seat. I grabbed the door, and the guy on the driver hit the gas, and so we all went driving down the road together, the two of them in the car and me hanging out the window, Uh, which was interesting because... um, They were the age of the kids I had been speaking to all summer. And so I wasn't yelling at them. I was talking to them like, hey, man, you don't want to do this, you know, and and trying to reason with them uh, about this. But after a few minutes of driving down the road, hanging out the vehicle, I realized I either need to get in the car or out of the car because hanging on the side of the car is not really working for me. And uh, I decided I'm just going to let it go. And so I let it go. They drove off, got arrested, which honestly didn't feel like a big win. So pray for these young men. Uh, but I remember getting back to my wife, and, and after all the adrenaline sapped out, uh, I said to her, my back hurts. <laughs> and then the next day, it hurt a bit more. 
Uh, and then on the third day, I woke up in excruciating pain, and I couldn't walk. And long story short, we found out I had three herniated discs in my lower back. One of them was sticking out almost three centimeters, uh, sending waves of pain radiating down my leg, and I was losing the use of my left leg. And as we sat with the doctor, he said, you're not a good candidate for surgery because of pre-existing issues. And he said, so here's the deal, man. We're just going to have to wait and hope your back fixes itself. He said, but let me acclimate you to your new reality. My wife was pregnant at the time, and he said, you can't hold that baby. You can't help her. And when that foot drops, you'll never get it back, and I really don't have a medical solution for you. So he sent me home, and I laid on the floor of our living room on my face for a month. Uh, and then slowly the pain backed off, and I was able to walk. And so when I say I'm grateful to be standing in front of you today, I mean I'm grateful to be standing <laughs> in front of you today, right? I mean it. But if you've never uh, taken steroids, let me tell you, um, they do make you irritable. Uh, they also uh, cause insomnia. So I was only sleeping maybe two hours a night. And I would lay there, and I remember there were moments on that floor where I was in incredible pain, and I would just beg God, knock me out so I could not be awake anymore. Uh, and uh, he wouldn't do it. And every time the AC kicked on in the house, just that subtle vibration would cause spasms in my back and waves of pain down my legs. And it would happen for 22 hours a day. And so I remember in that moment, I did what you would think to do in that moment. I said, please, God, take this away. Please make it stop. A week of it, I can tell stories of perseverance. Two weeks of it, okay. But a third week, I was like, okay, God, please take it away. And you know what? I got the hiccups for three days. And I was like, really? Was that necessary? And you go, why are you telling me this? Well, I'm telling you this for this reason. I just want to start by pointing out a stark reality about all of us tonight, and it's this. If God wanted to eliminate your struggle right now, he could do it. Whatever it is you're struggling with right now, and I don't even mean primarily in this moment, as I was praying about us, physical ones like I talked about, I'm talking about even your struggles internally, that thing about you you don't like about yourself, that thing you wish was different about you, that thing you keep doing you wish you would stop doing, that part of your life that you're not proud to talk about, you don't want to discuss in places like this, that thing about you that you hate, if God wanted to, he could take it away right now, and he hasn't done it. And all of us know that. Every one of us understands that. And maybe you've never heard a preacher just sort of say that starkly in front of you. They're going, yes, that deep struggle of yours, that lust that beats you time and again, that anger that flares up and costs you relationally, that anxiety that makes you awkward with women and makes you uncomfortable in rooms full of men, that insecurity that plagues you, that thing about you, you've begged God to take away. Please let this not be true of me anymore. That thing, if he wanted to, he could have taken away. He could have pulled it out from the roots, made it a non-issue in your life anymore. If he wanted to take it away in a moment, he could have done it, and he hasn't. And he hasn't. The only question is, why? He's strong enough to. He can blind whole armies. He can unblind somebody, right? He can raise the dead. If he wanted to uproot that struggle in your heart, that thing that humiliates and beats you, he could have done it, and he hasn't. He hasn't. So 
so the question is, why? Why? And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, and it's not something we necessarily sing, but in the quiet moments for us, we think it's because I don't know that he really cares. Yeah, I think God's strong enough, but when it comes to this thing in my life, I just don't think he cares. And maybe some of that energy is more aimed at him. You're like, I don't think he cares. I don't think he actually loves. And there's an anger at God in you because of some issue in your life. He hasn't resolved prayers. He didn't answer. And there's anger at him. Maybe it's pointed that way. Or maybe for some of you, you point that energy inward. And you go, I don't think he cares about me. And you go, I know God loves. I know he loves these people. I know he's amazing. I know he heals people. I know he does incredible stuff. But you go, but there's just something about me. I just don't think he's that interested in me. I know that he does powerful things in the bright, happy, shiny people at the church, but I don't think he's doing it in my life, and he's certainly not doing it in this area. And so you go, you know what, for some reason, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just not enough for him. And so I don't know which way the energy goes for you, but either way, behind that is a belief that I don't think God cares about me. And before we assume that, before we make assumptions about God's motives, I think we need to look in Scripture tonight and see why does God do that? Why does he linger when he could uproot the deep struggles in us that we ask, please, God, take this away? Why does he say no? And let's look at this text because it's going to tell us about it. And I want to give you just two sentences, and I'm going to tell them to you now and then unpack them in the sermon. And the two sentences are this. Why does he allow us to struggle? Let me, the first sentence is, you struggle as sons. And number two is you struggle because you're sons. You struggle as sons, and you struggle because you're sons. So you struggle as sons. What does that mean? Well, in verse 1 it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before us. The writer of Hebrews is calling us to run away from sin. Some people, when they struggle with sin and God doesn't take it away, I'll talk to young people that go, I asked God to take these desires away. He hasn't, and so I guess he's okay with them. Or maybe they don't go that far, but they go, you know what, I'll just make a peace with it. And you make a little peace with your lust and give it some part of your life. And you go, well, I guess that's just me. We're all human. You find jokes or rationalizations, but you humor it. And the Bible here, he's saying, no. No, you run from sin. You not only run from sin, you run from anything that would entangle you and keep you near it. God hates your sin way more than you do. The fact that he hasn't uprooted your struggle doesn't mean that he thinks it's okay to live in it. He's telling you to run from it. And then as he tells you to run from it, he references this great cloud of witnesses which is not us in this room. It's the cloud of believers that have gone before us. It was in the previous text of these men who had lived by faith and done incredible things, which some of us, when we read that, it's discouraging that he's named all these heroes like Noah and Abraham and Moses and said, man, they all walked with God, so you do it. And some of us can hear that in an insecure way of going, hey, they all served God, what's your problem? But that's not the way the text reads. Because if you read Hebrews 11, they don't come out as heroes. I mean, all the men in the Bible, you know this, don't come off awesome. I mean, yeah, Noah did some great stuff, but Noah pretty clearly had a drinking problem. Getting caught naked and drunk is not awesome. Abraham clearly had some issues with women. Moses had an anger issue that cost him a lot throughout his life. They were not perfect men. And yet they were men who trusted God. And because they trusted God, God used them mightily. To quote Harry Potter, these great men were once no more than we are now. So why not us? 
That's the motivation in Hebrews 12, is God used these monkeys to do powerful things because they walk by faith. God can use you too, as broken as you are. And you go, how? Well, he tells you in verse 2, looking to Jesus, not to yourself, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, most Greek words we translate into English, the English word is really the best word to say the Greek word, but that word founder is such a rich word in Greek because it can mean founder, it, it can mean uh, origin or author of our faith. Like a writer's an author, you make it. It could mean founder, like you found a city, like I plant a flag and be like, we will name this Trinity, Texas. You know, it can be like founder. It can also carry the idea of pioneer, trailblazer. That's the, the energy behind this word of someone who's going to take a machete and hack into the wilderness and then set up camp and say, we're going to build a city here and a community here. Pioneer, trailblazer, wake cutter. That's the idea. And it says the people, the men who are making a difference are not the ones who are looking into themselves. They're focusing on Jesus to see he cut the wake. He broke through sin and he broke through shame and he broke through death to make a way to God. He is the wake cutter. He's the trailblazer, the founder, the origin. That's who he is. And what's great about that is it says it's not just that he's the founder like, man, Jesus made it past sin, so come on, what's your problem? It says he's the founder and the perfecter of your faith. It's not that Jesus got something started, now you need to hurry up and earn his approval. It's no, he started it, and he's going to finish it. He's the founder of your faith, and he's the perfecter of your faith. That our hope in, Christ, in God comes by being in Christ and trusting, not in what we've done, but in the finished work of Jesus. And when you trust in that, all throughout the rest of the text, it says, then you are a son and you see it in places like verse 5. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes the Psalms. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there with whom a father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Now, there's a lot going on in that text, but I just want to point out to you that he says, if you've put your faith in Christ, he says it six times to nail it into you. You are a son. You're not working to earn the approval of God. You have it because of the work of Jesus. You're not fighting to get into the company of men who follow God. You're already in the company. You're not struggling to get on the team. You're struggling because you're on the team. Because of what Jesus did, you're a son. 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 And then one time he says, you're the one that he loves. So when you struggle with sin, no longer entertain that thought, well, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not really his. Maybe I'm not really saved. The idea is if you put your faith in Christ, you are a son. So when you struggle against sin and it discourages you, don't fight the battle with whether or not God loves me. He's telling you here he does because of what Jesus did, not because of what you've done. So does God care? Yes. Look at Jesus. Do I need to earn his approval? No. Look at the cross. He founded it and perfected it. Your struggle is within the context of sonship. You see that? So when you struggle with sin, you remember that, that I'm his child and he loves me. 
I'm not struggling to get into his family. I'm a part of the family, even with all this imperfection and brokenness in me. But here's where the text goes further. It says, not only do you struggle as a son, you struggle exactly because you're a son. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Is it not for discipline you have to endure? God is treating you as sons. For which son is there with whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. What's he saying there? You don't just struggle as a son. You struggle because you're a son. And you go, what's going on in that? It's basically this idea. I don't spank the neighbor's kids. I don't. I don't train him. I don't reprove him. I'm not working on him to shape him. Why? He's not my kid. I don't hit him with a car. You know, I'm not like trying to hurt him. That's about my commitment level to that kid. So if he's a weird kid, I just go, man, that's kind of a weird kid. Somebody needs to pray for that guy, right? But I'm not working with him. Why? Because he's not my son. Do you see that? What he's saying here is when you struggle Part of the reason you struggle and the reason God lets that struggle tarry, the reason he's not taking it away, is because you're a son. You struggle as sons, he loves you, and you struggle exactly because you're a son. So my daughter, when she turned one, we noticed that she wasn't walking or crawling or making any attempts to. And we realized it was because we always carry her. She was the baby in the family, so we just carried her around everywhere. And we realized by doing that, We are making her weak. We're not giving her the opportunities to strengthen her legs and to move forward. And so in love, I put her on the ground, which she didn't like. Ah, She didn't want to be there. But my love prompted me to put her in that place she didn't like. Now, I didn't abandon her. I didn't just throw a sandwich at her and go, good luck, figure it out, right? That's not what I did. I was there, I was standing next to her like, you can do it, believe in yourself, you know, like I'm working with her, I'm training her, I'm trying to help her, but I'm not relieving the struggle, I'm not taking her out of the struggle, I'm making her struggle, why? Because I'm her dad, so I make my kids struggle, I make them say please, I make them say thank you, I make them ask permission for things, I make them get up at certain times and wake up and all this, I drive them crazy, why? Because I'm their father, and because I'm committed to shaping them, right? Because the reality is, if I don't let them struggle, I make a weak kid. And I don't want them to be weak. And so I work with them. Why? Verse 9, besides this, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, right? We all have that. You had fathers that disciplined you, and you hated it, right? And yet, is it not a badge of honor for you now? Or some of you, even if it wasn't fathers, it was some sports team or something that, man, they really made you suffer and you just couldn't stand it and it was awful. But what happens now? You love to tell that story. Oh, man, yeah, back when we were playing in high school, we'd have to get up at 5 a.m., run 10 miles, right, no shoes, and then we'd get back and do 4,000 push-ups, right? You love that story. Love telling that story of how they made you suffer. Why? Because they were making you strong. And you love that. And some of you in this room, your deepest pain is that your dad didn't love you enough to make you struggle, to make you strong. But the reality is God, not because he doesn't love you, exactly because he loves you, he will make the struggle stay because in the struggling, 
you grow strong. To not let you struggle is to hate you. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So that kid in Fort Worth, two years ago, was driving his car past an SUV that had broken down. A mom and daughter stopped to help her. A youth pastor stopped to help her. And this kid drived in, who drove by, who had three times the legal limit of alcohol in his system, plowed into their car, killed all four of them, injured nine other people, including one of his buddies in the back of the truck that can now no longer walk or talk because of brain damage. And this kid did that, and that mom and daughter, they were the only family of one man. That one man went home tonight, and his family's gone because of this kid. And that kid went to trial, and his wealthy family had high-powered lawyers, and they went to trial, and in the trial, their argument was that the kid is not responsible because he was suffering from affluenza. Affluenza. He was just too affluent. He just had too much money, too much ease, that all through his life, his parents used their money and power and influence to relieve him from any consequences, relieve him from any struggling, relieve him from any suffering. And so he was a spoiled kid and therefore not even responsible for his actions. And the judge decided, no jail time, gave him probation, sent him home. He is suffering from affluence. Now, I don't know how you feel about whether or not that kid should be in jail. I'm not going to debate that with you. I think the kid should face repercussions for taking human life. But the truth is, as I thought about that kid, I thought, yeah, he really is suffering from affluenza. His parents used their money and their power and their influence to relieve him from any struggle in his life. And what they did is they made a weak kid. And a man with weak character, when they get power, they hurt us. They hurt us. You get a kid with weak character behind the wheel of a car, he will kill us. You get a weak man in control of a country? Look around the world today. Look at all these petty dictators with no character. Look at the damage a man with weak character can do when you give him power. What can a man with weak character do to a family, do to a business, do to a church? That a man with weak character, when they're given power and influence, what can they do to a woman's sense of self or a child's belief and who they are? What kind of damage can a weak man do? A man with weak character, when given power, will hurt us. And the Lord loves this world and you too much to let you be that. So he will let us struggle. And he will let us suffer. He will make us work, right? Because he knows in the struggle, as much as we hate it, he's going to make us work. And in doing that, he makes us strong. And we may look at that and go, well, I don't understand why he lets these certain things tarry in our lives. But I promise you, it's because God understands things you don't. I just want him to take this struggle away. The answer is no. Why? Because in the struggling, I'll make you strong. And some of you go, well, Ben, this addiction? How's this addiction going to make me a better person? This insecurity, how is that shaping me as a human being? This pornography thing that's destroying my family and my integrity and my confidence, how's that making me stronger? Well, the reality is God hates these sins, but he's not taking away the temptations for you, the internal drives in you. Why? Because he wants you to struggle. And even though it may seem counterintuitive, you go, I don't understand how that is going to make me a better person. It's not because God isn't good or doesn't love you. It's because you don't understand what he's doing. Sometimes we can't see it. 
But the reality is, wolves change rivers. Wolves change rivers. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about this video uh, I saw about a year ago, and it has been blowing my mind ever since. And I thought about explaining it to you, uh, but uh, the man who voices over the video is kind of this really exuberant British man, right? And I just thought, I can't, I can't top what he does. Um, so watch this, and then we'll wrap up our time together. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers and provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes, and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion, the channels narrowed, more pools formed, more riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, 
there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Uh, you know, my wife and I laughed when we were watching that video because uh, we just kept thinking about the meeting, you know, a few years before that where someone's in there just panicking like, how are we going to get trees back? Our aspen trees are dying. What are we going to do? And some guy's sitting in the back going, you want more aspen trees? I'll tell you. We'll get some wolves in here. Those, those trees are going to quintuple in like six years. You're like, What? Who let that guy in here? Sitting there like, we got to deal with this soil erosion. we got to like net the sides of the rivers. How are we going to keep the banks from eroding? You're like, you want less soil erosion? I got an answer for you. You get a pack of wolves in here. The river's going to shape right up, right? You can't be serious right now. But he'd have been right. Sometimes the best thing for life is to let something difficult remain. And sometimes God in your life, to help you grow, will send wolves in. And you will struggle, and you will suffer, and it will make you better. And so does that mean God made you addicted to pornography? Does that mean God made you do some of these sins? No, but some of you are asking him to just take the desire away, take the temptation away, and he's not. And you know what he's often doing in that? Some of you deal with some anger problem or insecurity problem or lust problem or whatever it may be, and that is a... Uh, presenting issue and you'll ask him just take this away take this struggle away take this difficulty away take this addiction away and he'll keep saying no and keep saying no until you get desperate until finally you go to a counselor or a pastor or to community with this issue which you should have been in in the first place and as you bring to them that thing that's ravaging you you see that all its power is coming from a deep wound in you you never dealt with and God in his mercy refused to take away that thing you were struggling with. Why? Because it was an alarm showing you a deep pain he needed to heal that you can't get healed without us. And so God in his mercy will let struggles remain so that you will fight, so that you will struggle. Not so you'll settle in them and go, I guess this is my struggle. No, so that you'll fight. So that you will grow strong. So that you will grow in power. So that you will fight and gather around you the resources to be strong and to grow in life. That's why he does it. One of God's greatest gifts to us is to let us struggle. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Uh, it's interesting. As I've talked with people in uh, addiction circles and just people dealing with 12-step programs and things like that. I was reading Patrick Carnes, this counselor, and he talked about that, that most people, what drives addictions is a sense of feeling unloved and unlovable, and often it comes from father wounds and family issues. And their whole life will be dominated by a presenting issue when there's some deep things driving it that they've got to deal with. And so when they talk about entering uh, addiction circles, they talk about first-order issues and second-order issues. Like if you go in for alcohol, first order issues is you got to stop drinking. We got to get the alcohol out of your house. Second order issues are internally. We got to deal with what's going on in your heart. 
And what I found was fascinating as I got to know some of these people and work in some of these circles is I saw that what was so powerful about them and what I think is a weakness often in men I see in the church is that these guys were hard in the right places and they were soft in the right places. What they had going for them was they were hard in the right places and they were soft in the right ones. They were hard on first order issues. As men would come in with addictions, they were hard in this place, really hard. Like some guy would come in and be like, man, yeah, I know I slipped up last night. Uh, my friend was having his birthday party and it's at a bar, so I had to go. Wait, 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 you had to go? What, did they chain you up and lead you there? You couldn't celebrate him in some other way? You went to a place that's definitely a trigger for you and an issue for you? Why would you do that? You didn't have to go there. No one made you go there. No one put you there. And you're like, golly, you guys are relentless. And they were just really hard in these areas. No. Get that out of your life. Never go there again. If that's something that's a problem for you, get it out of your life. Be ruthless against it. They're like Jesus. Is that eye causing you to sin? Pluck it out. And Jesus wasn't talking literally because you can lust with the other eye. But he's talking about you get radical in your life. They're hard in the right places, right? But then they were soft in the right places. And they would come in and this guy's talked about the deep wounds about their fathers and places they were hurt. They were so gentle here of you do matter to God. And God has a future for you. And shame is not the end of your story. And they were so gentle here. So many Christians I talk to have it the exact opposite. And they're so soft in their struggle against sin. So I'll talk to guys who are dealing with lust and like, yeah, I'm really struggling right now. And I'm like, what does that struggle look like? It looks like I'm just kind of looking at it, right? I'm like, where does it get you? Oh, my phone late at night, I'm in my bed. I just kind of find myself looking at images. I'm like, well, make no provision for the flesh. Get that phone out of there. And they're like, well, I don't know. It's my alarm clock. <laughs> then buy an alarm clock. That makes no sense. It's like an alcoholic pouring a glass of scotch every night and laying it by his head and going, okay, don't think about that. That's the dumbest thing ever. And I hear so many guys in Christian circles use the word struggle to mean failing, and you're not fighting. And you read this text. Did you hear the author of Hebrews? He talks like that. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not struggled to the point of shedding blood. Do you hear that? He says, you're not struggling. He says, you're not even bleeding yet. That's his mentality. Get a lot harder here. Some of us, man, we have too soft a definition of the word struggle. God has let some issues remain in your life. He's not just going to unplug the struggle. He's going to make you fight. He's going to make you study the word of God, get in community, confess sin, go to war, call when you feel weak. He's going to make you fight and make you strong, and you've got to get a lot harder here. But I talk to a lot of Christian guys that they're soft there, and then when they fail, God, you suck. Why did you do that again? God, I can't stand you. Nobody likes you. If they knew the real you, they would not be interested in you. And guys are so hard here. And that's wrong. That's wrong. And don't disrespect God by dismissing his word here. Because he tells you in the context of your struggle against sin in this moment, you're my son. 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 You are the one I love. I love you. So in the context of acceptance, let's fight. Let's fight. When a fighter goes in the ring, that is not the moment where the fight begins. The fight has happened every day when he makes the decision to get up and keep going to the gym, and every punch makes him stronger. And for us, God is calling us to fight, to struggle well, out of a place of knowing we're loved, 
we are soft with ourselves here, knowing we're children of a loving God. But he lets us struggle. Why? To make us strong so we can make a difference in the ring. So General Patton was not a great man in many ways, <laughs> not a perfect human being, but he led the third army in World War II farther, faster than any army in human history. And when he first took over that army, he was very hard and guys did not like it. He came in and the first thing he did when he took command is made them all drop their mile times. Even the guys who were working like in the office, they're like, what, what? no, I don't want to, this is exhausting, right? And he's made them all run, get outside and run, right? And they hated how hard he was until they realized over time it was making them better. And then he got in a moment where there was an issue far away and they were like, you know what? We need someone to help these troops relieve them. He says, my men can be there in three days and be in fighting shape when they get there. And they said to him, no, they can't because no army has ever done that. And he said, yeah, mine can because I have forged them and made them strong. He pushed them hard. He let them struggle to be strong. And yet when he addressed them, one of his most famous speeches to his men. I can't really quote any of it to you because there's so many cuss words in it. But at the end of it, <laughs> he says to them, you know how I feel. I would be honored to go to war with you wonderful guys anytime, anywhere. They knew this man pushed us hard, not because he doesn't care, but exactly because he does. Love lets us struggle because it gives life, right? That's why God does it. So lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weakened knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strengthen feeble knees. God is calling you to be strong so we can be healed. We can have life and be a source of life. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord, all of us come in here with some real pluses in our life, some people that care about us, some great things. But we all come in here with some big minuses too. We all come in here with things in our life that we're really not proud of, that we really wish were different. We don't get to choose our struggles a lot of times either. We discover them. And with our struggles come shame. And some of us, that, that has defined us and shaped our picture of ourselves for so long. And I pray, Father, tonight that as we look to Jesus, the author of our faith and the perfecter of it, who for the joy set before him endured that cross, scorning its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He did all the work and he sat down because it's done. That in our most helpless and hopeless and broken places, you sent a hero to fight for us and he fought it all the way to the end and he sits now in triumph so that those who will look to the Son get to be sons themselves. And I pray, Father, for any in here who don't know that they don't know the sweetness of the smile of our Father in heaven, that they would look to the Son and know that in Jesus Christ we have life, we have adoption into the family of God, and that never gets taken away. 
And God, for those of us who are your believers, who are still struggling, I pray, God, we would no longer let our minds entertain for a second that maybe you've cast us aside. May we not commit the sin of suggesting that Jesus' work wasn't perfect. We are sons. We are sons. And maybe there's some men tonight, Lord, who just need to say that out loud to you and to themselves. And I would challenge you, if that's you, you say it. I'm a son. Say it six times. I'm the one he loves. Look in the mirror tonight and say that. I am the one he loves. That's the word he chose. And then God, as sons, I pray, Lord, we would understand that you let us struggle. You let difficulties tarry in our lives. Not because you don't care, but exactly because you do. That difficulty with my back saved my life. So much fruit has come from that time of pain. God, there's some of us, we've been carrying secret sins and it has been death to us. And you've not taken that addiction away because we are people that hide in the secret and in the shadows. And you brought us here so that we can't do that anymore. And when we go to our small group time, we're gonna lay it bare and say, this is my struggle. And you kept that struggle in our lives so that we could do the honoring thing of being courageous enough to confess, courageous enough to move into community, courageous enough to step in and let people help us find a path of healing so we could look up in a year and go, wow, I am no longer a broken one. I'm a healer. I'm no longer an addict. I'm a coach. I'm a life giver to other men who struggle. God, I want to thank you that you allow us to struggle because you love us. And that doesn't give us permission to sin. It gives us the challenge to fight, to strengthen feeble knees, to lift drooping hands, to resist to the point of shedding blood, to run together this race that you've set out before us. Lord, for your glory and for the good of our brothers, may we struggle well as sons. Thank you that we do it as part of the team, as part of the family. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message from the 2015 Man Up Men's Retreat hosted by Houston's First Baptist Church. We hope this message has been encouraging to you and pray you have a great day. 